0: Welcome to the good, the bad, and the sequel Q&A. My name's Doug. So the next sequel that we're going to be reviewing is American Ninja 2, The Confrontation. Man, Dudikoff and Steve James are back once again to kick some ass. And with this one, a a lot more comedy. And Jamie, this is one of his favorite movies growing up, so this would be really cool to be able to revisit this one, talk about the the behind-the-scenes, and break it down. But before we get to our review next week, We have to interview someone. Hmm. Who did we get? Uh, None other than director and canon film legend, Sam Furstenberg. People say, people sometimes throw around the word legend. And it's like, yeah, this guy worked on so many movies that I loved. Yeah, you know, when I was interviewing him, I had a backdrop that had Revenge of the Ninja, Breaking 2, Electric Boogaloo, American Ninja 2, and Avenging Force. I just couldn't fit all the other movies that he worked on that I loved behind me. And in the beginning in the top of the interview, you'll hear it. I call him king of the sequels. It's true. I-, I should get him a little sign or something for his desk at home that says king of the sequels because that's what he is. He's man. All those movies are awesome. So, of course, your homework, you got to watch American Ninja 2 for next week. But before that, go look at his IMDb. Go on Tubi or Pluto. They have all of those movies. You'll love Revenge of the Ninja. Kick ass right from the start. And Sam, huh, what can I say about Sam? It's one of my favorite interviews because he is such a phenomenal storyteller. Of course, we talked about his canon years in the 80s, working with that. But his journey to get there, being a boy from Jerusalem, not knowing any of the inner workings of what goes into a movie or if there's a writer, a cameraman, what does this person do? To becoming a director of 22 films in Hollywood, to me is uh, very special. And you'll hear how great of a storyteller is. So that's why you should check out the book. I'll put it in the notes, the link to buy it. It's called Stories from the Trenches. Adventures in Making High-Octane Hollywood Movies with Canon veteran Sam Furstenberg. So that'll be in the notes. And hey, if you're first time here, welcome. Please subscribe wherever you're listening and rate us five stars. It helps us out. The more stars we have, the more stars that people, I have no idea how any of this works, but thank you for checking it out. And without further ado, here is director Sam Furstenberg. How you doing,
1: man? Whoa, what the background! Doug, you're
0: prepared, my God. You're the king of the sequel.
1: (laughs) The king of the sequel, that's correct, that's me.
0: (laughs) That's so cool, man. I I think it's so fascinating, your arc, like reading your biography, which I loved reading on your website, and -hmm. just going back and revisiting a lot of the films, and I watched last night the one that you mentioned Eric Roberts and Lisa London was in,
1: and... The alternate, yeah. Yeah. Uh, absolutely.
0: <laughs> what I like to do with these is just figure out, you know, how people got started, some early memories that you had, then talk about a few of the sequels you worked on and other stuff.
1: So so where did you grow up? <laughs> From all places in the holy city of Jerusalem. Uh, and in our neighborhood, uh, you know, it was in the 50s. Uh, I was born 1950. So it was fifties and in our neighborhood, I lived in a neighborhood and we had a, a a neighborhood theater, movie theater, not not the center of the city, not the downtown, but then our the neighborhood. And this neighborhood the theater probably, I don't know, but probably ran second runs, you know, when it came back after the, 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 the top theaters in the, in the center. <laughs> and uh, I watched a lot of movies, uh, I would say from the age of seven, I would say eight, and uh, uh, Metany, not in the evening, you know, the double bill in the afternoon. And what I remember is a lot of Westerns, a lot of American movies, a lot of Westerns, uh, World War II movies. You know, I I don't have a vivid memory of the movie, but this was the mixture. But we also saw, uh, because it was Israel, we saw Italian movies, we saw... Uh, We would see Turkish movies once in a while. So, but, but, uh, but uh, French movies, but the main diet was American movies of the fifties, gangsters, movies, Westerns, crime movies, uh, occasionally musical. So this was my beginning (laughs) as a child, my beginning with cinema.
0: Do you remember the first one that you, I know you said you saw so many doing the, Double billing in the Matinees. Do you remember the first one that you remember? Because I know you like Hitchcock. Was it like an early Hitchcock movie?
1: No, the, the earliest movie I remember, but this was really young age, the, even earlier, was the movie Bambi, the Disney movie Bambi, the animated movie. I remember it vividly. But I, now we are talking about maybe when I was five. My father took me. I remember the fire sequence. I specifically remember the, of course, you know. But actually, among the, uh, yeah, but that's as a kid, as a young, as yeah. a, a, young, a very young. But you know what I remember, what impressed me a lot, I remember, uh, actually, uh, uh, Bridge Over the River quiet. I remember yeah. it vividly. World War II movie, I, the details. Maybe I saw, I saw it again, maybe later, and that's why Jagged the Memory. But the Westerns are all mixed together, mixed up together. It's <laughs> like one, one long Western. <laughs> uh, but uh, Bridge Over the River Choir, I remember. I, I remember. What
0: was the moment that you said, like, hey, I want to pursue film?
1: You know, I grew up in an age that we did not know. We didn't have so much information like today, kids, yeah. available. You <laughs> people your age. So... No, uh, no, no internet, no, no magazine. Uh, if there were movies magazine, there were uh, gossip magazines about the stars, not about how you make movies. So we didn't have any idea how you make movies. So, but what we knew. I knew that movies are made. Of course, later I became a high school, you know, teenager. I saw movies in much more. Uh, um, Serious way, and I, I, you know, I started to understand different movies, American movies, non-American movies, etc. But we were not uh, conscious, I would say, or aware that actually there is process, that there are writers, that there is a director. Uh, at this age, uh, I enlisted the, when I was 18 years old, finished high school. I enlisted to the military. Uh, it's a mandatory in, in Israel. It's a mandatory service, three years. And while I was in the military and I was uh, 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 (laughs) in a natural way, I became the projectionist of the, you know, we would see a movie (laughs) once a week, a 16 millimeter movie. In a natural way, I became the projectionist and also the one who will choose from a list which movies we will see or which movie the others will see according to my taste and then i started to understand okay this is films and films have uh, histories and there are different type of films and there is a hitchcock and there is a john ford and etc and i said wow i like it i i i like to tell stories i knew you know this this is a natural instinct you don't choose it it's a talent i was the kid who came back from the movies to the neighborhood to the building or wherever we live and sit on the sidewalk and tell the stories <laughs> tell the movie to the other kids <laughs> so this was me and uh, and uh, so i said okay that's i want that's what i want to do i want to tell stories through this medium through this cinema so we are talking now 1920 you know this is a, a, and still we didn't have or at least i didn't attempt to find out how people make movies now, I, as I say, I lived in Jerusalem, uh, and then I was in the military all around, all over the country. But there was an industry in Israel. There was a film industry. Oh, okay. Because now we are talking about the '68, '68, '69, '70. There was an industry, but the industry concentrated only in one place, Tel Aviv, which is the biggest city in Tel Aviv in Israel. So it's like Hollywood. It was a small industry, not, not, not nothing big. You know, once in a while, an uh, Israeli movie uh, will come out, but I didn't know any anybody who was in this business or any. any uh, the big name was Menachem Golan, later to become the head of Kenon, but he was the yeah. biggest producer in Israel when I was a teenager. Uh, so I, I I I was not connected to this uh, uh, to this world of how do yeah. you. Know, Making movies and how do you make movies? I only knew that this is, this is it. That's how I want to, that's what I want to do. I want to work in this, in this, in this field, in this industry, in this, in this type of entertainment, which is called movie making. <laughs> what were some of the movies
0: that were made out of Tel Aviv? What kind of genre were, were they shooting?
1: At the time, there were two, only two type of movies that I can remember. Either they're artistic movie some, you know, an artist, uh, uh, the early movie makers in Israel, they studied either in France or in England. So if they wanted to become a movie maker, let's say you take Boaz Davidson, he's famous, he's older than me. So he went to the London film school of, uh, film school in London. Some others went to France and they came back and they made movies. So either they came up with notion that they are artists, so they have to scrap some money and make artistic independent movie. <laughs> or it was the industry, the industry that is intended to sell tickets, to, 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 to make movie in order to sell tickets. And those movies uh, were not uh, personal expression, but rather comedies. Most of them were comedies. they, you know, once in a while, they were trying here and there to make a thriller but they were ma- mainly comedies. And the comedies were based on a, on the co- on a conflict between rich and poor, mainly. Uh, so it would be love, love story c- conflict, you know, he's from a rich family, she's from a poor family. He comes, She comes from a good neighborhood, he comes from a bad neighborhood, <laughs> uh, etc. And equivalent to, uh, in Israel, we didn't have, you know, what you know here in the United States, different races. But we have people who came from all over the world. It was the beginning of the state. 50s, 60s, immigrants came from all over the world. So you had the immigrants. There were immigrants who came from Arab countries, Muslim countries. There were immigrants who came from European countries. So this was also a conflict. Um, A nice uh, boy from from a family from Eastern Europe meets a girl from a family that came from Morocco. Conflict of interest; it has to be resolved, usually in a comi- comical, melodramatic way. So those were the main movies: those com- comedies, melodrama comedies of uh, conflicts of society, and people loved them. There was before television; there was no television in Israel in the <laughs> in the sixties. Oh, 60s. Really? Uh, and So this was uh, as a visual, yeah, visual. This was now, of course, American movies were big, you know, in theater because there was no television. But once in a while, when there was an Israeli movie speaking, Hebrew speaking movie, people flocked, usually uh, went to see them. But they were mainly comedies.
0: Wow. So from there, so you get out of the military, what was your first step to knowing like you knew, hey, this is for me. What was your first step?
1: So I was involved in entertainment here and there in different ways of entertainment. Uh, My hobbies through a uh, uh, through high school, etc. I was photography. I was a photographer. I knew how to develop. I, I was uh, devoted <laughs> so, uh, photographer, busy with it as a hobby. And uh, while I was in the military, it so happened that I became also a part of a entertainment troop, singing and uh, you know sketch. Uh, th- those are k- kind of troops that entertain soldiers and entertain. Uh, uh, group, so I was part of it. I was not a great actor or a singer or <laughs> not a great voice, but I was in entertainment. I was always involved in entertainment and photography. So theater photography, stage and photography really leads itself to cinema. You know, you see um, stage <laughs> photography. So I decided that it was 21, three years, I finished uh, the military service uh, 21. I said, I'm going to Hollywood to study movie making. Wow. How do you make movies? I even had an opportunity. I didn't even have to buy a ticket because our troop, the, the one that I told you, the entertainment troop uh, uh, was sent on a mission to the United States to some kind of um, uh, propaganda type of, uh, to tour all campuses in, uh, in the United States to promote the, the Israeli culture, let's put it this oh, way. Oh, really? So I was here in a tour, three months or four months tour, starting from New York all over the North and the South, and ended up in New York three months. It was 72, 1972, when the tour, and, and then I you know, I, I, I met some people, I started to ask, and part of the tour was in Los Angeles, of course, obviously, we, <laughs> come, we came to Los Angeles, and every place our host will take us places to see. And here in Los Angeles, where I, where I live now, I'm talking to you from Los Angeles. Uh, the, our host took us to Universal tour, to see Universal, and uh, <laughs> you know it, there is the tour, and they show the stages, and so have special effects. It was '72. It was primitive compared to the tours today. Uh, anyway, the end. Uh, the tour ends on some kind of a hill over the the, it's, uh, the hills over. It looks over Los Angeles over the valley, and that's the end of the tour. I was so impressed. I'm looking over the city, and I tell myself, "That's it. This is my place. I, I was made for here. This place was made for me. I'm coming back." We ended the tour in New York. I told my friend, "Adios, amigos. Thank you very much. I'm not going back with you." This what? I'm staying in that's it. I'm staying in, in, in uh, the US of course and, and I did in New York they, they, they went back to, the true big Bang to. Israel. I stayed in New York and from New York I came back to Los Angeles with the sole purpose of studying filmmaking. How do you make movies?
0: Did you know anybody in the states at the time? Did you have any family or fr- uh,
1: anyone over here? I didn't know anyone that much. I had a family. Here in Los Angeles, in uh, Long Beach, not in Los Angeles. Oh, okay. Remote family. And uh, this was my anchor. I needed just a place to... But I didn't know anyone. I, I traveled with nobody just by myself, just like this. I came and I, like a pioneer, like a pioneer going to the West. I'm going to study film. I don't know anybody. I don't know anything. So I, I you know, I camped with them a little bit in, uh, in Long Beach. <laughs> I actually started to take uh, uh, cinema classes in, in in Long Beach in the City College, which was quite eye opener. I'll tell you about it. But then I moved to Los Angeles, and I enlisted in the in a film school here after I took a few classes in Long Beach, here in Los Angeles. But the uh, Columbia College uh, of Arts, which was dedicated to filmmaking, television, and filmmaking.
0: That's great. So then from there, what was your first time? Did you know at that time you wanted to be like behind the camera or you just were any job within working in film? Did you think about writing, producing, or just directing?
1: As I mentioned before, I didn't know. And truly, I'm telling you, this is yeah. really the truth. I'm 21 years old, 22, 72. I didn't know anything about the process, how you make movies. You know that most people in the world, until today, I believe, most people in the, in the world believe that movie is being made like a play on the stage, that you start to film, that, you know, you just take a camera, you put your actor, you start in scene one, number one, <laughs> line number one, and you start to film the movie, and yeah. you go on until you finish the movie. That's still most of the people in the world, that's how they believe that. That's how you conceive. You You think it's a, stage play and you film it now of course I understood because I told you because I was a photographer so I understood you need the camera uh, you know I knew about film camera uh, eight millimeter you know those tiny eight millimeter camera yeah. the people uh, family movies so I, I wasn't that uh, that ignorant but so I understand you take a camera you film you make a movie okay <laughs> who are the people what are, is their edit I didn't know there was editing and now I told you, when I went to Long Beach, before I even started to study making movies, I, I took those classes which are called film appreciation. And that, that opened my my eyes really, because for the first time I saw Japanese movies, Italian movie, neorealism, uh, samurai movies, uh, a whole field of movies that I didn't have a chance to see in theaters, just going to theaters and seeing commercial cinema. And, I started, you know, those classes. I started to understand. Oh, there is a director, and a director has a point of view and different taste. So, Kurosawa makes different movie from John Ford, and John Ford makes different movies from Hitchcock. So, I started to understand there is a filmmaker with a taste that brings his talent and makes a different movie from from each other. Uh, so, I went, you know, then I told you I went to real film film school, and I didn't have any. Specific uh, goal in or or, or or role that I will take within this movie making. I started to see. Okay, there is a cinematographer. You have to to make sure it's in focus. There is a focus puller. Editing. You are editing the movie. You are recording sound. You're, so all uh, somebody is in charge of the wardrobe. Somebody is in charge of of the the, the background, the, the scenery. So I started to learn. I said. I saw that there are many, it's a, it's a group effort, it's a team effort to making movie, it's not like crazy guy that suddenly makes a movie, <laughs> <laughs> unless you're an animator, unless you make an animation, and I started to understand, and I immediately, you know, the school was three years, but it took a very short time for me to understand that I am a storyteller, I'm not yeah. here I mean, I like it. I, the, 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 it was really nice. You know, when I went, when I came to school, I had this feeling when I started school, when I the first semester, there is this strange feeling, and it has to do with many fields, not necessarily movie. I suddenly, suddenly I, I was among my peers. Because everybody in school, the teachers and the students, they all came to make movies. And this feeling that suddenly you are in your world. You for the 22 years you were looking for something, and suddenly you found it. You are with your people. You are you are swimming with the same fish that, like you. So this was epiphany. This was great. Suddenly everybody was talking movies. Suddenly everybody around me was interested in the same thing. But I realized, you know, different people, of course, they have different interests, makeup, wardrobe, whatever. I knew I'm a storyteller. Somehow I will end up in the position. Of the storyteller, the one who tells stories, which in the movie making is the director. So, the one who put together the visual story is the director. So, even when I was on my first year, like second semester, I already, which is in film school, it takes time until they assign you to make movies. You go yeah. this this class, that class, camera class, editing class. But I I was impatient, and in the first year, I already made a short movie. But you know that's not a big deal because we know pe- about people who made. <laughs> you know, Spielberg made the short movie when he was a high school kid, so he was he had more knowledge because he lives here in, in Hollywood, in Southern California, than I did. But uh, I understood immediately, so I already started to make making short movies. You know, I knew I knew I knew photography, so I learned how to operate the camera, editing very quickly. I learned editing, so I, I understood that this is where I'm going. Now I'll tell you something else. Even if you're not asking me a question, in my first year, uh, we had a teacher. One of our teacher was uh, the head of actually the, the camera department of one of the station, television station here in town, Channel Thirteen. And he maybe he realized that I'm good with the camera because I had so much experience uh, as a as a teenager. So he invited me to come and work for the in the station. No way. So within one or two semesters, I was already a cameraman in a television station, but this is those huge video cameras, like the new yeah. studio camera. So I was working right there, so I was already, this is not movie making by all means, but it's a visual way of telling ideas, telling telling ideas through visual means. And uh, And within a year, I think my second year in school, 73, oh, suddenly I was invited to a party and uh, and uh, t- the party that I was told that the, the p- big producer, Menachem Golan, from Israel, will be in the party. And maybe I'll tell you about it. But anyway, I, I started to work with him. And I, I, uh, I started to work on a movie that he produced here, Lepke, the movie Lepke with Tony Cortis. And uh, I was a, a runner, basically a runner. Do the, you know... I read
0: that. That's what I think so cool about you, is that you would do anything, really. You just wanted to be involved,
1: you know? But uh, go back, uh, But once again, I met there, the cinematographer was Andrew Davis. We, he became a director later, famous director. Yeah. Andrew, he kind of befriended, he was already a cinematographer. I was just running and bringing coffee. In, and he looked at me and said, listen, I <laughs> see you want to be a movie maker. You have to leave this, don't do the coffee business and the chair business anymore. You have to be next to the director, you do everything to become assistant director because you will be a director one day. So back to school, yeah, so back to your question, eventually I understood that I have to be a director to tell visual stories. Yeah.
0: So when was your first opportunity? Obviously Andrew said, hey, you need to get into that assistant director chair. Did you have that opportunity?
1: So I'll tell you, this, you know, I went to school three years, of course. And while in school, Myself, I, I made, you know, you can say, uh, move, make make movie, not necessarily directing, but everything together. I made like three, three movies through the school. But in school, there is a great opportunity when you go to film school. Everybody wants to make a movie and they need volunteers to come and help. I'm telling you, I volunteered to every movie of every student in school. Because I figured out you learn from everything. You know, every time you're in the setting experience, and not anything, they need you to hold the, the, the boom for the, they need you to record the sound, they, they need you, you have to do something. So, this is a great opportunity for people who go to film school. So, I tried everything. So, I was already involved in many, many short movies because of the school. And then one day, you know, and, and I'm operating a camera, TV studio, TV station that to me it was so boring, I was going out of my mind. News—that's really boring to me. Some other people find it more interesting, (laughs) and uh, and uh, there was some opportunity. Once in a while, we were doing wrestling before the wrestling became big thing. (laughs) So, doing wrestling with the camera, Bozo the Clown. I used to to operate camera. Oh, okay. Yeah, (laughs) and and then one day I was invited to to uh, New Year's Eve party. And I was told, I knew the name Menachem Golan because I grew up in Israel. He was the biggest producer in Israel director. And then I meet him and I'm a film student. He's a a big director. He just made a big movie, Kazablan, and he sold it. So he's telling me, as part of what we're talking, I say, say he's he's directing, producing a movie here in Hollywood, the name of the movie, Lepke, it's a gangster movie, it was after, after The Godfather, everybody was making gangster movies. And uh, uh, Tony Curtis uh, asked him, can I work with you? <laughs> I'm young, young student. <laughs> so he said, yeah, you know, no problem. <laughs> Basically, if you are not expensive, you can come and work with me. Okay. <laughs> so uh, I came and they were preparing. It was uh, during the preparation, was not, not filming yet of this movie. And uh, the company built a big set. uh, Here, there is a Culver City studio, which used to be the Selznick studio, where they filmed uh, *Gun with the Wind. And um, that's where they were building in the back lot, like a street in New York from the 30s, the gangster era. And I became part of the art department. Again, you know, just they send me here and there. I didn't know anything specifically. But from the first uh, day of... uh, filming was the the first day of filming i realized that uh, you know i have to be here where they're filming not where they're building sets so i kind of switched myself to become the runner on the set and as i told you just bring the chairs bring the coffee go and bring this go call call this guy go and i was next to the director i decided if i want to learn movie making i have to stay right in this area yeah and this was my opportunity to 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 observe, to learn, to see how you put together a movie. What are the mechanics of making, to, of controlling crowd, of leading a crew, big crew. You know, the crew is big in movie making. And and uh, what are the mechanics of? And and you know, when the day, the, the filming day was over, I didn't go back home. I, I realized I see that the, the top guys, the cinematographer, the director, they are going somewhere. I said, where are you going? He said, we're going to see the dailies. What is there seeing the dailies? Oh, we have to see everything we filmed yesterday. Said, oh, can I come with you? Yeah, I come with So then I went with them every day after work, uh, you know, just sitting way back on the theater to watch the dailies. And then I realized the director is going to talk with the director every day. I said, can I come with you? He didn't mind. He said, yeah, you can come. So I used to come and sit in the editing room See, he's talking with the editor. So, uh, You know, so this was my encounter with real, professional, uh, commercial movie making, And I I made the best out of it. Wow.
0: That's so cool that you were. Were you always like that as a kid before you knew what you wanted to do? Like, you're kind of fearless. You know, you went to the States, even though you just had you had family in Long Beach, but you're fearless with that and fearless to act, you know, ask these people who are hotshots so to speak on set like the number one and number two hey can i do this can i do that that's amazing
1: i i would say if i remember remember myself i was shy in a in a sense that i didn't put myself up front i i i didn't like i I wasn't the one who would brag that i know already everything but i was not afraid to to ask to, to to push myself into places but in a (laughs) <laughs> let's say in a shy way, in the back, I wasn't the one who pushed for forward yeah. and, oh, I already know, let me do it. Like, no, no, no. I was the one, you know, I, as I say, I would sit on the back of the theater, This was the I was willing to, uh, next movie, they, the company decided uh, to make another movie, you know, because they already had all the wardrobe from the era gangster, those gangster period pieces, wardrobe and set and so they decided to, Probably to maximize the investment to make another movie right away, so they made another movie with the Jack Palance. Oh, nice, the Four Deuces was the name of the movie. Jack Palance also a gangster movie. So you know immediately I, I asked to continue. So I was already elevated. I was mm-hmm. not anymore the runner. I went to the art department and uh, set dressing in the set dressing department. So you know, move the chairs, move stuff on the set. It was winter. Uh, put the, the put the fake snow all over. So I was already in a professional already. Not not. You don't need a lot of knowledge. Just follow instructions. Uh, but yes, but to seize opportunity, that that that's how I would I would characterize it. You need to seize opportunity sometimes by asking but sometimes, many times by volunteering. Yes, I will do it. So right away, here you get two movies right away. And then I heard somebody told me about another movie, not not made, not by a student, but a very, very low budget, some independent low budget movies. We're we're looking for professional people that will work for cheap. So I uh, immediately contacted me and a friend that was a friend. Name of the movie was The Again, gamb- not, not the famous The Gambler movie, but another low-budget, low-budget movie, The Gambler. So oh, here I already, because the crew is so small, so I already, have, I have to lay trucks for the camera, for the dolly. So, you know, you move on. And then uh, uh, Andrew Davis, Andy Davis had a chance to photograph, uh, to film another movie, low-budget movie, The Eyes of Dr. Cheney. Uh, the title changed. Now it's called the the House of Doom or something. Mansion of Doom. Oh yeah, I,
0: I wrote that down. Mansion in the Dune because that's like your first credit.
1: And this was Charlie Bend. This was the first movie that Charlie Bend, the producer, produced. Later he became a big producer of low budget uh, sci-fi <laughs> type of movies. But this was the first one. And uh, and they were looking probably for <laughs> cheap labor. So Andy called me. I had a friend, electrician, much much more knowledgeable than me. He called us too. Would you guys come over, work with it. And boom! Suddenly, I found myself. by the grip <laughs> because there was one grip, one electrician. This was a small, tiny, tiny crew. <laughs> Director was uh, Michael Pataki, the actor Michael Pataki. And uh, so, uh, not arguing about the money, seizing the opportunity. I, not how much you are going to pay me. Yes, I'm, I'll come. Whatever. I didn't even ask how much they will pay at the end of the week. Whatever the, the check came or the, the cash, whatever the case, at the end of the week we were happy. I had a very minimal means. I needed very little. You know, I was a student all all along. I'm still a student in school. You know, yeah. All those, everything I'm telling you, I'm still a student going to classes. So I juggled myself between like working and running, and I mainly. You know, if it was night shoot, I would take day classes. If it was day shooting, I would take night classes. <laughs> I'm juggling between the, <laughs> trying to finish film school and, and all those, those little movies. But um, yeah, you, you just, if you're really devoted, that, that's my opinion. And I talk with young people today, young filmmakers. If you are really devoted, you, you believe that this is your calling to tell stories cinematically, you do whatever it takes to be involved. Just you do it unless you are so talented. Uh, you know, Listen, when you hear other stories, it's kind of the same. When you hear the Steven Spielberg story, he just, he came to Universal and he worked with no salary for a year or two. He was just working. Nobody knew why he's there. And he was working. Never asked for money, you know? <laughs> just showing up and working. That's <laughs> it's kind of the same.
0: Oh man. So how does it go from there? So that I think, uh, mansion the doomed i think it's around 76 75 ish yeah so how is how do you get from there to one more chance what are you doing in those five years
1: i, I will tell you i start when I, I i started to work mainly with menachem golan and Euron globus oh nice they had a company uh later they became canon they didn't have canon at the time they had a company which was called a Euro europe Picture. And uh, this company produced those two movies that I told you, Lepke and uh, and Forduses, uh, and uh, then they had an office and they needed a runner, real runner. I had a motorcycle at the time, so I became, uh, uh, the, uh, I was the office runner, you know, until I found between movies. And basically, you go, I, I was would drive with the motorcycle to agency, bring con- bring a script, take script. No, there were no emails. <laughs> <laughs> we think about the. Thing. We cannot believe that there was a time when there was no email. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, bring the contract. Uh, you know, so just run around town, studios, agencies, and, and they were basically trying to make another movie, third movie here in Hollywood, but for some reason that I didn't understand at the time, financing. Uh, st- they couldn't make it. They de- couldn't make it. And one day, uh, Golan tells me, I'm going to make, uh, I, he put together a movie, but they're going to shoot it in Israel, back in Israel. But it's an American movie. It was called, I think it was called "The Diamonds with uh, Robert Shaw. The movie was Diamond with Robert Shaw. Oh, nice. And uh, later on, Richard Rountree uh, uh, was added, uh, Shelley Winters. He said, I'm going to Israel and I had to close the office. Say, said, Can I come with you? I want to work with you in Israel. I'm still going to school. So if you pay your way (laughs) to Israel, you you can come. You will help us as one of the assistant directors. And I knew I wanted to be assistant director. So of course, I quit school for one one semester or whatever, delayed. And I bought a ticket. I went to Israel and I I worked there as an assistant to the assistant director, second assistant, what they call it, third assistant director, assistant to the assistant director. The movie was shot in Israel, in Tel Aviv, Bethlehem, Jerusalem, Tel Aviv, with Robert Shaw, Richard Roundtree, uh, Barbara Hershey, and uh, Shelley Winters. They were, they were the stars. It's a Hayes movie. Uh, and I was assistant to the assistant director. And uh, one day, Menachem Golan, Menachem Golan is a very temperamental figure, very temperamental, was. And one day he had a big fight with the assistant director. They're screaming, shouting at each other. Uh, he said, I will fire you. The guy said, you don't have to fire me. I'm walking off. I don't want to be working. Oh, he walks away. <laughs> the director is now without assistant. He looks around. He sees me. Now you are the assistant director. Go get Robert Shaw. Suddenly, out of the blue, I'm an assistant director. Wow. In a In a movie. Big movie. Considerably. It's not a studio movie, but you know, you have to, to, to deal with stars. Robert Shaw after the movie Joes. He was a big oh, star yeah. after the movie Joes. Okay, so I worked until the end of the movie and I came back to uh, the United States to finish school. I, I had only one more semester. I finished school. Okay. I'm done with school and Menachem Golan and Yaron Globes, they're coming back. Again, they need a runner. Okay, I'm back with them, running with office here and there. And then they put together another movie, 52 Pickup, with Joe Don Baker. By now, I'm a certified assistant director. Yeah. So Golan says, Oh, I'm going, we're going back. Do you want to come? I finished school. Okay, everything, well, I had a degree. I, I, I achieved what I came here to. I said, Okay, I'll come with you back to Israel. I got all my stuff with the motorcycle and everything back to Israel. And we got to, they had offices in Israel, in Tel Aviv. It was Noah film, like Noah and the Ark was the name of the company. It was a famous company. And they they produced a lot of movies and they were intending to do this 52 pickup. And we are preparing and I'm preparing. The writer was a famous writer, Leonard Lou Leonard, Lou Leonard, that wrote a lot of uh, crime books, Los Angeles. Uh, it was one of his books. So he came with us to Israel. Not Lou Leonard, Leonard something. I forgot his name, Leonard. And and I, my job was to travel with. He adapted the script. Screen, the screenplay was an American screenplay story, so he had to adapt it to Israel. So I was traveling with him in Israel. He's adapting the script, writing the script, and suddenly they, again, something happened financially. They couldn't put the movie together. I don't know. They canceled the production. So now I'm here. i mean, here. I traveled all the way from uh, U.S. to Israel, and then the movie that I was supposed to be first time, the, the assistant director, the main assistant director, is canceled. Menachem, Menachem Golan tells me, don't worry. I'm producing another movie at the same time with a different director here, a Hebrew an Israeli movie, and there is this young new director. His name is Boaz Davidson. You are going to be his assistant now. So I was handed over to the other production <laughs> uh, with Boaz Davidson name of the movie is uh, Lupo goes to New York and Israel a Hebrew speaking movie and I I worked on this movie as an assistant director and by default I don't know if to call it by default or by 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 the mechanism of this young industry the film in uh, this is 75 1975 it's still a young industry in Israel very, very young industry and they make a lot of those comedy movies that I told you. And yeah. this was one of them. And so I became, boom, suddenly I became one of the sought after assistant directors in Israel. There were, it, it was not a profession that was understood at the time. Uh, you know, in the European system, that, uh, in the European movie-making system, the assistant director is, is really assisting the director and one day he will become a director. In the American way, the assistant director is the guy who runs the set. He's not assisting the director, really. He's running the set, and one day he will become production manager, not the director. Yeah. That's a different way. So suddenly they had this guy who came from Hollywood, which was me, and I I know how to run the set, the way the assistant director, in the American sense of way. So I became an assistant director. For the next four years, I was working nonstop in domestic and uh, imported what we call over there foreign movies. Yeah. So those are movies who come to Israel. They are not Israeli movies to shoot in Israel. Uh, Among the movies, the big one that I was assistant director was Operation Thunderbolt, which was Menachem Golan directed big, big um, military action movie about the raid of Antebe. And uh, there is a lot of biblical movies are coming to Israel because they want to shoot in the location. And, uh, after this, this four years of being assistant director in a lot of Israeli movies, uh, working with famous Israel, Israeli director, Israeli stars, uh, uh, I worked, the last movie was a huge, huge biblical movie, The, the, the Life of Jesus, was nine months production, huge, huge production, seven hour kind of a video movie, cassette, and uh uh, so I was there, you know, English, and I knew how to run. So this was, and by the end of these four years of many, many movies as assistant director, I, I realized, you know, I kind of thought about it. I, this is not what I want to do. I don't want to be assistant director. It's not leading me in the right direction. I want to tell stories. I want to make movies. Uh, within the Within those four years, I made a short movie in Israel as a director, as a movie maker, as a creator. Short movie, 30 minutes for the Israeli television. At the time, black and white television. And I got a lot of help. You know, by then I I, I befriended a lot of cinematographers, lighting people, gaffer, pr- production, wardrobe, uh, art department, all of those uh, editors. So I enlisted. Uh, I even had a producer. I did not produce it myself. I directed so we had a producer with all professional, real professional people working with me, professional cast, actors. And I made this short movie for the sake of a dog for the Israeli television, black and white. And I said, that I'm quitting. I, I'm, I, don't, I don't want to do this anymore, assistant director. Uh, by then I was already married. I, I married and my wife wanted to go to the United States. She's in, studying psychology. And I said, maybe I'll go back, master degree, you know, MA, uh, uh, graduate school. And uh, I applied and I was uh, accepted here in Los Angeles. Loyola Marymount University is a good uh, film department. And I was accepted. So it was uh, 79, by the end of 79, four years working in Israel. And both of us, my wife and myself, came back to Los Angeles. She went to UCLA. I went to Loyola Marymount. So your question was, how come, how suddenly I make a movie, One More Chance, which is a feature film. <laughs> and this is now 79, and 1980. So I went to school, and, you know, I assessed the situation. First thing I see, that I'm the oldest student, because, of course, I went to school, you know, I, I started at 21, when I was undergraduate, <laughs> now I'm uh, 29. <laughs> and uh, most of graduate students in America are graduate school at 22, 24. I was the oldest and with tons of experience five yeah. six years of working in movies and experience I'm coming to film school and most of them you know even when they come from undergraduate they didn't take undergraduate classes in cinema only in graduate school they decided to go to cinema Part of uh, I understand the part of the curriculum part of the program is by the end a uh, uh, graduate student is expected to make a short movie. Up to thirty minutes, maximum thirty minutes. So through the year, two and a half years, whatever it takes, to write a script, uh, engage in classes, and at some point make this one movie, which will grant him the degree. And I, okay, I started to write a script. I, I like I, I like very much uh, crime movies and social dramas. That's the way I saw myself: somebody who makes, you know, social dramas. Crime, social drama, this area, you know, <laughs> with the social <laughs> commentary. <laughs> so I wrote a script like this. Well, it was called a different script name, but on more chance about a prisoner coming out of prison and trying to put the pieces of his life back together. Thirty minutes. And while I'm in school, I meet in the corridor another Israeli student. I was surprised. Also in undergraduate school, I met some Israeli, because Israelis did not go all the way to Hollywood to study cinema at the time, as I told you. But I, still, I met a few. And I met this guy in Loyola Marymount, David Warnbach. He's a well-to-do producer nowadays. I said, David, he was undergraduate. I said, David, listen, I have an idea. If <laughs> And I, I showed him the movie, one uh, For the Sake of a Dog, the one I, I made in Israel. He was... Pretty impressed. <laughs> so David, listen, I already made a 30-minute movie. I don't want to make a 30-minute movie. I want to use those two and a half years that I'm here to make a feature film, 90 minutes. And I already already wrote a script, 30 minutes, but how about if you want to produce and I want to direct, together we'll make a feature film? He liked the idea. And how are going to make it? We'll convince the school, the university, the department that it's beneficiary Beneficiary to the cinema department to produce a full feature movie. So the school will produce the movie, the the film school in the Loyola Marymount. So I extended this, expand expanded the script to ninety minutes. uh, You know, more uh, made it a full story of a guy coming out of prison, trying to put his life together. And we went to school to the heads of the department, whatever it take, and we convinced them that it will be beneficial if we, if they create, no, we, they create a class, and the class will be producing a movie. I have the experience, and and this is great for all the students. It, it was a win-win situation, no question about it. And uh, they agreed. We created the class, you know, for three semester at least. You need a year to, and uh, you know, we'll teach there will be a supervisor a professor, a supervisor a teacher and I will share my experience with everybody. I will direct the movie. But the rest is upon us you know like uh, the, uh, film school has a great great advantage. there is uh, stages in film school there are editing rooms, there are editing machines, there are cameras, there are equipment, tripods, lighting. What they don't usually don't supply you is film. Even when, if you have to make your short movie 30 minutes, you have to buy film. We didn't have video, there was no video. 1780, 1980, there was no video. There was video, but very bulky, you know, tapes, huge tapes of video. I'm not, you know, of course, tel- television station, this big two inch tape, but there was some kind of portable uh, one inch tape. Uh, very bulky, not, uh, not practical for location shooting, et cetera. So, and all the school equipment is 16 millimeter cameras. So what we have to do, our job was just to, to get film and to develop it, to find a lab that will develop it. All the rest can be done in school, in cinema. So David and me, we didn't have any money or minimal amount of money, but we find out kind of through listening and that there is a financial aid department. And in the financial aid department, if you are a lone student, you are eligible for more assistance from the department, from the financial aid, more aid. And both of us, we didn't have parents, we didn't have family, we came from another country. Yeah. So we presented ourselves as lone students, you know, <laughs> lonely students, we don't have family. So now we are eligible to all the tuition and everything and assistance. So... Whoa, I found out I didn't have to. I don't have to pay to school uh, for school, all loans and work study. You remember work study. So I became the projectionist. You know, you have to work to work together. I, I was the projectionist uh, for the school, 35 millimeter projectionist, <laughs> and and some loans and we, t- <clears throat> sorry, we took all this money we bought to buy uh, uh, 16 millimeter films. There is a way to buy cheap films. It's called short ends. And we found the lab, PhotoCam, and they developed the film. And, and this was the movie, One More Chance. We found the cast, Johnny LaMata, you know, really, we, there was a casting director and we, we did auditions. And the actor John LaMata, that later was in television series Elf, uh, was the, the lead uh, part. And the lead lady we found, Kirstie Elling, that later of Cheers, later. But this was her first job. Johnny was uh, John Lamata was a seasoned actor already, stage and, uh, and film actor. Uh, Kirstie Alley was her first movie, and and we we're shooting only in on weekends, you know, because that's the way the school is built. Because during the week they all go, they have classes. And uh, or some people are working, some people are not working, etc. So every weekend, Saturday, Sunday, we're shooting a little bit more, a little bit more. Little, <laughs> and the crew, not every time the same crew, some people are busy, not busy. <laughs> uh, if it was a set interior, we built set in the school uh, or practical set. If it was exterior, the story takes place in the streets of Los Angeles. Um, <laughs> so we are out and about in the streets of Los Angeles shooting every a year and a half. Shooting, 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 shooting. But eventually we ran out of money, totally. And we are editing. While we are shooting, we are editing some, you know, we get some of the film. And we are accruing a big, uh <laughs> bill, a huge bill in the photo, in photo cam because we didn't pay every time, you know. We just put it, we pretended that we were a company. So they put it on like billing us, and we are not paying. So now we have a big debt over there. And that's it. We ran out of money. We edit together. We have one hour of movie. We didn't finish to shoot the movie. We just didn't have any more money after a year and a half. And David and me, we don't know what to do. School was not coming with money. And I hear, and then I hear through the rumor lines that uh, my friends, so-called friends, they're not my friend. My bosses, Menachem Golan and Yoram Globus, they bought a film company and they're here in town again. They're back in Hollywood, but with a new company that they bought, the name of the company is Canon Film. It was a New York-based company. They bought it and they moved it immediately to Hollywood, to the West Coast. And I told David, well, I'm... We, first of all, we have to shop around. We have to look if there were any company who is willing to give us a little bit more money, not a lot of money, to finish this one hour into one and a half. And we, we, we somehow we, we, we were contacting production companies, distribution company, but there was no buyer. Nobody bought into this idea and say, okay, here's your other, whatever, few tens of thousands and go and finish the movie. So I told David, let's go. I know those guys. Let's go and meet them. And we went and we met with Manachem Golan. And he saw the material and he said, okay, this was a young company, very young. Canon itself was not a young company, but for them, they were out right at the beginning. And they wanted to produce movies. That's what they do. And I said, okay, we'll give you the money and you go and finish this movie. And then we shot another for two weeks We, you know, shooting another two weeks just to finish whatever scenes. We didn't have a chance. They were kind of the bigger scenes. And uh, we enlisted back the students. This this time we'll be a, we were able to pay them a little bit and feed them, like bring pizzas for lunch, <laughs> etc. And we just finished this movie and then we moved the entire operation. They had, ed- Canon had editing rooms and we moved the entire operation of finishing editing the movie to Canon, and the movie was completed through the money of Canon. Canon was the, the distribution company for this film, One More Chance. And that's how, and suddenly after a year and a half, I fulfilled my goal. I, I reached my goal to make, to create a film, a full length film, kind of a commercial On, on, on with the, uh, I was not about it. it I never had it in my mind to make an artistic individual type of movie, uh, but rather enter the, the, the world of commercial movie. making. And here here it was, there was this full movie story, drama, not, nothing big, but that's how it was done. That's amazing. It, I didn't know
0: when I was doing research, I didn't know that Canon, you went to them to help you finish that movie. And then from there, did they look at it and like the movie? after it was fully done and say, hey, two years later.
1: Okay, let's put it this way. They never liked the movie because it was not commercial. You know, Canon or Menachem Golan, Yoram Globus and Canon, they were uh, commercial movie makers. They made movies to make money. not They don't make movies to have statements <laughs> or... or to make beautiful artistic movies that knows that, that was not their intention. They make movies to make money, to make more movies, to make more money and to make more movies. So it's a commercial, it's a business. It's a business like you, you, you know, you create a, a lawnmower to make money. Yeah, yeah. So this movie did not make money. It was not a commercial movie. It took us to some festivals, you know, uh, uh, even without Canon, I, I mean, there was a festival here in Chicago. International Film Festival got the second prize for newcomer. Uh, I was invited to Locarno Film Festival in uh, Switzerland, very prestige. And they took us to Cannes Film Festival, (sighs) Uh, you know. So they sold it among the other movies that they sold it because they were really in the business of selling movies. It was, Canon was, at least in the beginning, was a sell organization, you know. They either make movies or they buy movies from others and they go out and they sell the movies, the rights. When you sell movies, you sell you sell you sell the screening rights to different countries all over the world. So they among the movies, they sold this one. But it was not a commercial movie, it was not a movie that would make money. <laughs> so maybe they recoup the tiny invested investment they put in this movie. But to answer your question, they like the movie? No, but they knew, okay, we have here a guy that knows how to tell a story in a cinematic way. So we have here a guy that we know him from years back when he was assistant director, so he knows how to run the set. He understand the schedule, money, a budget, not money, budget, schedule, and and he pro- he had proven himself that he can put together 90 minutes of a story beginning middle end drama well you know okay acting the actors we can control you know direct actors you know control let's let's call it direct actor conduct a crew a full crew and put together a story so maybe we can use it so maybe I'm exaggerating but this is the way of thinking and by then you know it took a long time as i told you this is one more chance we were editing it this small company, cannot started to make movies, and uh, and they started with horror pictures. At the time, were very popular. Low budget, independent horror pictures in the beginning of the eighties uh, were very popular, and there was a way. This was also what Charlie Band was doing. Same thing, same kind. Of. So, uh, at the time, one of the Cheapest way to make a movie is horror picture. You take uh, one castle or one building, you put your cast inside, they are being terrorized, you don't have to move location. That, that's the cheapest way to make a commercial movie, horror. And they, they were very popular in the 80s, very good So Canon started with horror pictures, Schizoid, New Year Evil. There were a few of those uh, titles. But, I, but they were kind of, they were more the inclination you know Menachem Golan was the main creative of the duo and they were cousins by the way Menachem Golan and Yoram Globus their family they're cousins uh, so it was kind of divided that Menachem Golan was more of the creative part of it or, or not more of he was the creative part of the yeah. duo and Yoram Globus was the financial part of the duo so and he came from action cinema, Menachem Golan, more inclined toward action than, and horror picture, horror is not, you know, in Israel, we never saw horror pictures until the the first movie that came to Israel, horror picture was The Exorcist. There was never a horror picture, never played in Israel. Uh, Israeli audience don't buy into this illusion of horror. Maybe today, but not at that time, then. So he didn't know nothing. You have to grow up with this culture of horror movies. He didn't know anything about horror, but he was good. So he realized probably that maybe to go toward, more toward action and uh, adventures, not horror. And somehow they, they they produced, and he directed a movie that was called Enter the Ninja. Yeah. Kind of like Enter the Dragon. <laughs> the, the idea of Ninja, of martial art, Ninja movie was presented to him. By some people, Mike Stone and others, and uh, he liked the idea. There was a script. They went to the Philippines, and he directed. He he was a director. Menachem Golan produced and directed movie that called "Enter the Ninja" with Franco Nero, the Italian star in the lead part. Shokasugi is the villain. Uh, Few more names, and they edited it. And now he was in his field. This was really, and they saw they they it was selling pretty good compared to the much better than the horror pictures that they were making. And, uh, whoa! by then they already made, they already produced six or seven movies. As I said, um, mainly they tried as uh, 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 horror pictures and this one action movie. So they, so what do you do in, mov- in Hollywood when you have a, Even semi-successful movie, what do you do? You do a sequel immediately, you know, because now it's easier to sell. When you make a sequel, it's easier to sell. And there were sales organization. So, uh, but for some reason, I don't know exactly, he didn't, the the company became more and more busy, you know, uh, active and he became more and more busy in running the company. Now there are more than one movie, two, three movies. He didn't want to go and direct another so-called ninja movie. And we just finished the one more chance. We finished the, the uh festival run. We came back from Cannes Film Festival, everything was over. And just by by chance, maybe I don't know how to describe it, I was around and he turned to me and said, Would you direct for us this? We're making a sequel to the and I saw the enter the ninja because I was part of the office. The office was smaller. We were like ten people. All the secretaries, editing, everything. It was a very small operation, maybe ten people. And I was already around. I, I had my foot <laughs> in. So so was my friend David. We had our foot in the company. So I saw this movie Enter the Ninja. I said, "Of course I will do." I mean, what was the question? I will direct for you any movie you want. I'm a young, inspiring director. I. I want to do this kind of cinema, commercial cinema. I didn't know that it was going to be action, but commercial cinema, Hollywood mainstream cinema. And uh, and then he asked me, but there is one problem: we need a lot of action. It's an action movie. What do you know? What do you know about action? I don't know anything. I said, "Don't worry, Golan. I will. I know action. I will take care of action. It will be okay." I didn't know at the time that it will be okay, but and so this was how. This one more chance led me to my second chance to make another now full, full fledged Hollywood independent commercial movie.
0: I love Revenge of the Ninja. I love that. I think what I love about a lot of the movies and like why I love canon films is because there's just so much action and Revenge of the Ninja, right from the beginning of that movie, it's pretty much nonstop.
1: So, listen, that. As I told you, my education is Westerns. Yeah. War movie. So that's the way the brain works. I mean, you cannot help it. You are influenced by what you have been educated, one way or another. So you, know, you want to make artistic movie, you make artistic. You, you're a comedian, you make uh, Animal House. Because yeah. so here I am, more or less in what I want to do. Yeah, But as a genre, I don't know anything about martial art movies. I never heard anything about I knew samurai movies. I like Akira Kurosawa, of course. I saw Seven Samurai, Yujimbo, Sanjono. I saw all the samurai movies <laughs> because I like this genre. But, but they're basically Western. It's a Western yeah. in Japan. Samurai movies are Westerns in Japan. Uh, Western movies are Samurai movies in America. It's the same, <laughs> kind of the same genre. The, the, the same. Uh, a dramatic structure, most of them. So I liked it, but I never saw a Hong Kong uh, Kung Fu movie. I never saw Bruce Lee. I didn't know Chuck Norris. I never, never, I, I, for some reason, it evaded me, this this genre altogether. And suddenly I'm uh, handed this kind of uh, movie to make a martial art movie, Kung Fu movie with ninjas. But luckily enough, I was introduced to Shokasugi. Shokasugi was the villain in the movie Enter the Ninja. They liked him very much. The company and they decide to make a movie with him, and he will be the hero. No, not the villain in this movie. Revenge. That's this. What they they told me. You have to go with this. And there was a writer already, Jim Silk. He was already. I, I think he almost kind of almost finished the script. The, the script was ready, and the star was ready. And I started to learn the subject and Sho Kasugi introduced me to the Hong Kong martial art movie, to the Kung Fu movie. He used to take me, there is a section here in uh, Los Angeles which is kind of a lot of Chinese population. And they show those movies, but without subtitles in Chinese. And Sho knows Chinese also, Japanese and Chinese. So he used to take me over there, and we, we go to the theaters. I I sit and I watch, and those movies are usually long movies, the kung fu movies. I sit there for two hours. I see a movie. I don't understand what's going on." And anyway, this was my job was to learn to, to look at the action, not not to never mind the story, and 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 he introduced me, and I decided, in in my brain, in my inclination, my instinct told me that Canon. The company wants to make a movie for the Western audience, for a general audience. They don't want to appeal to this only the martial art enthusiast. So I'm going, I am going. I have to make a, a a hybrid movie, which Enter the Ninja was kind of also. But anyway, I have to make a hybrid movie, a movie that will be a little bit Western, a little bit James Bond. Let's say more James Bond. It's not a Western because it's, a, it's urban. So it will be James Bond with martial art. Will be partially James Bond, uh, partially kung fu movie, a uh, martial art movie, and also kind of from an instinct by an in instincting way. I decided or I knew that I have to do that. Fifty percent of the movie of the ninety minutes has to be action, so I need to to create forty-five minutes action and then a short story, forty-five minutes story. That's all. That's uh, and 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 th- this was my guidance. That's what guided me try to make a movie to direct or to, to create a movie that which, which will have a so-called hollywood western action i call let's call it james bond action it will have martial art action and it will have and it will be 45 minutes the action part of it at least for the the other thing i immediately understood by instinct but not only by instinct if you saw you see any james bond movie it starts with an action yeah the movie opens you're in an action sequence And only then the story, James Bond introduced himself after the action. So I said, I'm going to do the same thing. We're going to start with a bang, (laughs) big action movie. And the rest is structure, you know, three big action sequences opening in the middle, at the end, one chase scene somewhere, and a few more uh, minor action sequences, let's call that. And the big ones are lasting seven minutes, you know, they're long, seven minutes to 10 minutes. Revenge of the Ninja on the roof, I think we're 12 minutes at the ending, uh, with the end uh, sequence. And then there are like three minutes action sequences. So there is a structure to a movie. It's not just, you know, it's really, there is a structure that uh, frame that everything fits into this. And that's probably why Revenge of the Ninja looks the way you describe it. Out of all of those decisions and uh, that I had to make, the type of the movie that I thought that will fit me as a director, the type of movie that will fit me there. Now, as I told you, I did not think that I will end up in action at all. I did not think, yeah. and I did not think that this will this will uh, lead to any succession later. I thought, this is one movie. Let's make it. This is this is called the Revenge of the Ninja. It's an action movie. Maybe I'll make another one more chance later, or, or some tragedy. I don't know what. I didn't know where where the the career was going. You did so good with it because that movie was awesome and it did well, right? So uh, for Canon, it did more than well. Uh, Anecdotically, this is an anecdote. Canon Company was one of few independent companies that were operating in the same arena at the time. Uh, One of them was Zoetrope, even uh, Zoetrope Coppola. Uh, There was uh, Shapiro Glickenhaus, uh, there were uh, Crown Entertainment. There were many companies, not many, let's say not many, but there were enough companies that were operating in this arena of low-budget independent movie, either adventures. Uh, they concentrate. Corelco, Corelco was one of little bit, little bit bigger than the others, and uh, they they did genre movies, what we call genre movies, either action, adventures, horror. Or you know soft porn, you know soft core porno kind of TNA they used to call them TNA yeah. So every one of those companies co- uh, specialized in, in the type of movie. So Kenon was uh, was one of them. Now every one of those companies, the goal of all of those companies is to make a movie that will be picked up by a studio for distribution. Distributing movie, making movie is much easier than distributing movie. Distributing movie in North America, US and Canada is a complicated process with a lot of with knowledge and advertising and theaters and regions. And it's it's pretty complex. Small, tiny company cannot do it by itself. So for them, the goal is to get a distribution by a major company. And then when you say major, we mean the studios. MGM, yeah. uh, Universal, Paramount. And th- there were a few smaller distribution companies. So every movie that every one of those companies finished, first they, they presented to the big ones, to the seven big ones, or the, to the six, uh, United Artists was not existing anymore. So there were the big six on Paramount, Warner Brother, Fox, or Universal. And if they were rejected, they would go to a smaller company. But this was the holy grail. If you get it so canon was the same no exception every movie they made they show to every and now canon was a company that globally they distributed themselves they sold it they did not distribute they sold the rights but in america in north america it has to be distributed one way or another yeah and and they were trying but and they were rejected all the time by the major studios but the movies played you know they had the, including enter the ninja it played in america by by independent company, by someone. and then here you have Revenge of the Ninja, non-star, Shokasugi is not a, is not a, a non-star, nobody knows him. And they show it around, and M- Canon had a good relationship with MGM because we used to do all our post-production work in MGM, in the, M- the laboratory, the sound mixing. So there was already a relationship. And MGM sees the Revenge of the Ninja and they say to Canon, yes, you're getting a yes. We're going to distribute this movie for you. <laughs> we like it. Ah, oh, Canon was, they they were, they were elated. Finally, finally, <laughs> they scored. A major studio distribution company would distribute the movie. And uh, MGM took it took it very seriously with a advertising campaign, television, radio, like every legit wow. movie, you know, like a legit movie. And they opened out 800 uh, theater. Uh, in a system that was called Flip Flop, you know they have the system. I don't know if it still exists. It was east of the Mississippi, west of the Mississippi. So you do 800 prints. Prints are expensive at the t- even at the time. Every print was one thousand dollars to create wow. a print for the theater, thirty-five millimeter print. So that's quite an expense. Yeah, including advertising. You have to on top of it, you have to put advertising and shipping cost everything. So they opened 800 theaters east of the Mississippi first ran it for a few weeks, they move it. Now, whoa, this was a surprise. In New York, for the first two weeks, it was at the top of the box office, Revenge of the Ninja. It was. It came out of the blue. You know, first of all, I guess, first uh, the martial art crowd went to see the movie, and then they came home and they told their friends. It, it was a movie for men, for young men. I mean, women did not go and see this movie. But anyway, to, this target audience liked the movie, and they went out and they bought. And they bought the ticket and the movie was kind of successful, not a, like a major movie successful. Well, <laughs> by no means, uh, we cannot compare it to a James Bond movie or any other French connection that there were at the time. You know, those movies were at the time, uh, the action movies that came out at the time. and Not the same, but for independent small movie, considerably, it was a big success. And Canon was happy, MGM was happy. Now, now they are talking bigger numbers, not huge numbers of money bigger numbers and of course what do they want to do
0: sequel <laughs> did you see it in the movie theater when it was out in los angeles what was that like the first time you sat in the theater and saw your movie
1: of course listen we see the a lot of screenings before it goes out yeah you know? and then i had to see the screenings with mgm etc but we decided david produced the The same guy david Moore, produced the movie uh, revenge of the ninja and we said, okay. I said, "Baby David, David, we have to go and buy a ticket and go see the movie in the real theater, and let's go to the neighborhood. Not, not in Los Angeles. There is an area, Westwood, where they used to show the movie, prestige theaters, or Hollywood Boulevard. But then, of course, the neighborhood. I said, but this is a movie of a neighborhood. It's not a movie. Of... <laughs> <Westwood."> <laughs> so we went to uh, Culver City over there, a neighborhood, uh, which the audience is mixed, ethnically mixed. You know." blue color, white, black audience, Hispanic, mix. you know. That, and of course men do go to a theater, only men with their, men with their sons. <laughs> you know, so the <laughs> boys or, or boys came alone without parents. <laughs> so this was the crowd, boys, men, mainly, maybe, you know, I don't want to discriminate against women, they were probably also women. And, and boy, now the, it starts to run, and I see that the audience participate, you know, they Interact with the screen. The boys are screaming. The boys are screaming. They are standing on the, the chairs, and they move in the aisle. So I see that there is enthusiasm that that it works. Doug, listen. We we know. Maybe we don't know. the 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 medium of cinema is a is a is a type of entertainment tool that manipulates audience uh, emotion. So is theater. Let's say. I mean, not much different. But cinema much stronger. A cinema has bigger influence on uh, human emotions. And uh, uh, if you see people crying, laughing, screaming in theater means that it's successful, that the, the means are working, are really manipulating the- Yeah. So there was a lot of screaming, shouting, uh, interacting with the screen, of course, you know, it was a boy's movie. When we come out, we came out of the theater, there was a kind of a column next to the theater, and two boys, uh, eight, ten. They, it was an R-rated movie, but you know they snuck in, maybe eleven years old, and they are trying to jump and flip, you know, flip from the column to the, to the to the sidewalk. I told David, this is a success. It's okay. We made it. If two boys are trying to fly from the col- from this uh, pedestal to the to the <laughs> sidewalk, maybe uh, eight foot, ten foot high, they are trying to fly, to flip, somersault into the. We made it. <laughs> it was a it was a nice, but I must make this point. We we still treated we didn't, you know, we didn't see we didn't treat this movie. Or we didn't we didn't have the notion that this is a big major movie. Uh, major cinematic movie, we still tweeted it, okay, we made this independent, small budget, low budget, uh, small budget uh, um, movie, B-movies, they used to call them B-movies. And, and it will be over. It will play for one year. It will go to some minor theaters. I don't know if it, it, it was violent. I don't even know it, if it will play in airlines in the, in the airplanes uh and and there is a, the span of life of this movie is half a year and then it will be forgotten and that's it maybe we will be we'll be lucky we'll make another movie <laughs> so that's the way we treated it us and we didn't keep any outtakes we didn't keep like you know they treat the big movies the major movies they keep the, the probes they keep the merchandise we didn't have anything now people are looking for stuff there is nothing left.
0: Did you personally keep any mementos, like the script or anything? Very little.
1: I have the I have the mask, the silver mask of the bed. Nice. Ninja. I took with me. I took two. I donated one to. Uh, there is a museum here in Los Angeles, a martial art museum. I gave them one, and I keep one. And Shokasugi gave me a sword, oh, katana, as a awesome. gift. At the time, I didn't know. I was too too ignorant. But it's customary in the in the in Japan in the East. To give gifts, and so because I directed the movie, he gave me nice katana. I have it here. I don't have anything else from this. I have the but mask. that's
0: cool that you at least. Yeah, yeah. I have the mask yeah. and the gift,
1: the, the the sword, the gift. And uh, you know, I, I get so much, so many requests for. Do you have anything? Can we buy anything? I have posters. You know, some some of the posters. Maybe the press kit is lying somewhere. Yeah. Uh, I got the at the time they used to. They had the kits of uh, of black and white and color stills that they gave the theaters, you know, the, nice. to, to hang in the lobby, lobby cars. They used to call them the lobby cars. So I have a set of black and white, a set of color. That's all. <laughs> and, well, but but the, the, the reason was that that's the way we treated the, those movies. We did yeah. not think that they will last for more than half a year, uh, the span of the life of those movies. It was followed by sequels, uh, Revenge of the Ninja, uh, no, remember uh, Ninja Three: The Domination, which was yeah. not as successful, but uh, the jewel of the crown, you know, the, the pinnacle was American Ninja. American Ninja went off the roof, you know, they broke all records for independent, low-budget I mean Again, i we're not, it's not uh, we're not talking about Turtle Ninja Turtles, but American Ninja broke all records for this type of movies, independent, low-budget action. Movie. Yeah.
0: So let's talk about that. I think it's so cool. Just looking at the movies that you, that you directed, it was like for three years straight, you were working with those two men, Dudikoff, Michael Dudikoff, and Steve James, actually Steve four years or four movies in a row. Cause you did Riverbend after that. But it's funny when you think of Michael Dudikoff, I don't know if he did any Ninja movies before American Ninja but he was in bachelor party with tom hanks that's how like i remembered him cuz i didn't see it. i was born in 86 so i saw these later but i remember seeing him in american ninja and i'm like that's the guy from bachelor party
1: <laughs> not only he was also in there was a television show St- star in the family he was in this television show it was not a huge show but but he was a regular and star in the family i think it was Star in the family, star of the family, star. But uh, yeah, so it kind of became in. Can- I was within Canon, and I became kind of director of sequel. It did. In between, I also, you know, I made the Ninja Three: The Domination with Lucinda yep. Dickey and Shoko which was not as successful as Revenge of the Ninja. And then they needed a director to do the sequel for uh, Breaking. Breaking uh, was a huge, huge yeah. success for Canon, huge success, and for MGM. So immediately sequel, and it's one of the only sequels for, I, I know today I learned in the history of Hollywood that came out in the same year. The original and the sequel, yeah. both of them came out in one year. Yeah. With, in one year. So it's one of the only, maybe the only movie that came out in one year, uh, sequel. So I was enlisted, because I knew already Lucinda, I was enlisted to do the uh, um, Breaking 2, Electric booger, which was... Also very successful movie.
0: Sam, I got I to tell you, if you could get a nickel for every time that people, whenever somebody says something to, they oh, say electric but bo- bo- It could be anything course. at all. You know, like on a golf course, my buddy would be like, hole two, electric boogaloo. <laughs> yeah,
1: it became a meme. There is a big article. Uh, somebody wrote a big article about okay. this. Uh, and uh, sadly enough, lately in a negative connotation, very negative connotation. There is the Boogaloo's movement. The Boogaloo movement is a white supremacy that oh, yeah, in the resurrection of Civil War, a sequel to the Civil War, Electric Boogaloo. Oh. The same thing, but in a negative connotation. <laughs> yes, you're right. And uh, but also successful movie, which also survived the test of time, like Revenge of the Ninja. Strangely enough, Ninja 3, The Domination, became a huge cult movie because this is one strange movie, let me tell you but became a huge cult movie lately in the last seven years, eight years. But then Menachem Golan, he wants to go back to the ninja, You know, in between we had this electric Mugula. He said, I want to continue with the ninja, but I have an idea, Menachem Golan tells me, I want to do an American ninja. This is basically an absurd idea because this whole ninja thing is a Japanese, it's not even Chinese, you know, martial art go between Korea, Japan, uh, China, whatever. Ninja is only Japanese, only Japanese. This is part of the culture of the heritage of the mythology of Japan, of the (laughs) martial arts. And he wants to make American Ninja. Listen, I don't care. I don't care. It's your company. Whatever you want to make, we'll make. And I actually like the idea. Why not? (laughs) So that's how it was born. That's why it was launched. Let's make a movie. No Shokasugi, nobody. American Ninja. I was involved in writing the script. There was a writer, of course, they they hired, we hired them, right? There were producers, I I, I directed. There were producers, Didion Amir and Avi Kleinberger, and there was a writer, Paul DeMilke. He was uh, hired and all of us together, we started to work on the script and the character came to life. He will be a soldier. It will be a James Deanish type of a character, chip on the shoulder, the reluctant hero. All of this was developed as we are working on the script. And then the script was done and there was time for casting. And we decided uh, in in Hollywood, usually casting goes through agencies. Uh, The company sends the description of the uh, characters of the intended movie to the agencies. The agents send the actors for reading auditions. Uh, But the other way is open audition. Open audition, anyone can come. Agent, not agent, doesn't matter. Actor, not actor. And we were looking, we didn't know if we were looking for an actor or or martial artist. Maybe we'll find another Bruce Lee, you know, who knows, uh, or another Chuck Norris. So it was open. So there was a message, was sent to all the martial art dojos, the schools in the area, and uh, to the agencies as well. And many people came in for this part, for Joe, and other people came from the other uh, part that uh, Steve James did. And... I, I believe there were like 400 young, you know, young kids, young actors who came in. And uh, first they went through, uh, before they even came to read for the part, they went through a test, uh, martial art, to see if they are capable, or if they are real, if they are capable, if they can do it. They didn't have to be martial artists, but good enough so they can because Lucinda Dickey, she was not a martial artist. She was... Uh, when we did uh, Ninja 3, we also looked for the same thing, either a martial artist, let's say Cynthia Rothrock, or a dancer. And Lucinda was a dancer. So here in this case, we looked for an athletic guy, you know, athletic guy, or a martial artist. And we see many. So first they had the martial artists with the, I don't remember who, with Mike, Mike Stone, with the Steve Lambert, whatever, the, the stunt people, the, the action people. And if they pass this test, they came to see us for real. <laughs> And I saw many of them for reading, and many of the girls, and many for the part of Jackson, Curtis Jackson. And 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 among them came Michael Dudikoff. I didn't I didn't know if he came open call or an agent sent him. I didn't have any knowledge about him. I didn't know if he was in another movie. But uh, I liked immediately. I liked his demeanor. I liked his appearance. His look. He was not a martial artist, you know, but he was very athletic. Michael was very athletic, and by then, later on, I found that he already had a career in modeling, and he, he worked on the television show. He worked in Bachelor Party, and he also had a starring role by then uh, uh, in a movie called Radioactive Dream that was directed by Albert Payone. So I saw the movie later. They showed me the movie after I. So. As it always worked, finally by thinning down, we finally had five finalists. You know, the one, the finalists, we read them with a different Jackson. I will tell you, the Jackson was not so much. We we liked Steve James so much that there was no question. He was right away. We we saw him, we liked him. He was a martial artist. Uh, We liked his appearance, everything about him. So he got the part already. Uh, His agent agreed to to the deal, I guess. And among the five, we paired them with, the, with different actresses. Uh, ended up with Judy Aaronson uh, from Friday the Thirteenth. She's great, yeah. We liked the most Michael from all of them, and I told you he already had one movie, Radioactive Dream, in a starring role. So uh, that's that's uh, by this process we ended up with with Michael Ludikov. And with Steve James, and it went on. You know, American Ninja was so successful that there were sequels and sequels, and Michael did some movies by himself, and and Steve James uh, was added to the crew of uh, Delta Force, to the to the cast of Delta Force. So they had their career in Canon. They had a thriving career in Canon, both of them.
0: And this was like the same time with Canon. Obviously, you were there for all of it, and it was pretty cool. I saw you posted about the book, that came out pretty recently, the one about the, the history of canon films. Yeah, there right? is a
1: book which is called The Stories from the Trenches. Yeah, I got to order It was them. written by uh, Marco Sidelman, And it's basically a book that follows the movies, that, uh, the movies that I directed, my career. But it's really a book about canon. There is a lot about general stories and knowledge about canon and about the independent low-budget genre movies of the 80s and the 90s. But it follows, the, the, the narrative follows the movies that I made. And uh, yeah, this is the book. So That's awesome. if anybody is interested, you guys can can get this book, Stories from the Trenches.
0: <laughs> That's so cool. And then write about that uh, with Canon. The reason I obviously love your movies, but the other movies that they did at the same time, because I think it was like 85 or 86 was Death Wish 3. They did Death Wish four. They were also doing like uh, Stallone Cobra. So they were doing so well, even on the other end of it.
1: Well, so among so what happened among the companies that we were talking about the independent everybody wanted to be there was there was a term there then that was called the mini major majors were the the six we mentioned you know Universal MGM Warner Fox. But there were a couple of companies that were trying to create mini-studio. The, the most successful at the time was Coppola with Zotro. He had a company which was almost a studio. He, bought a, the, he had a studio here, a small studio in, uh, across, from, uh, across from Paramount on Melrose Boulevard, There <laughs> is a small studio. He bought it and this was, then he moved his studio to, the, to San Francisco. Later, there are a few more, you know, uh, of course, uh, Spielberg with Dreamworld, but at the time, everybody wanted to become a mini major, a mini, and Canon grew to became the biggest of all of them. They didn't have a lot. They didn't have a physical studio, but they had more movies. They were producing more movies than any other independent company or any other major company at the time. There was a moment that they would produce like 40 movies a year. Wow. To the top you're you're mentioning the top years, 86, 87. This yeah. is the top of the company. And they started to work with stars, not the big, big major star, not the, the mega stars. I mean Stallone, but uh, but uh, you know, stars from the past, Charles Bronson. Charles oh, Bronson yeah. started to work with them. They created Dudikov, they created Van Damme. They created Chuck, Chuck Norris was already kind of established, but they created him. They elevated him. They didn't get the Tom Hanks, and they didn't get the big name. Yeah, they did not. They didn't need to come and work for independent company. They can work for the studios. But but you know, Sylvester Stallone was a big star at the time, and other other star name worked for them. Not the big, not the A list, what we call the A list. But and the company was making bigger and bigger movie the biggest movie supposedly was was to be superman number 4 they got somehow they got the rights to do superman number 4 with uh, christopher Reeve. oh wow so yeah you're right big names Faye Dunaway. big names used to work for canon and uh, the company was a madhouse at that at that time. The company was a madhouse. We were <laughs> doing those small, still doing American Ninja, American Ninja <laughs> Number Two, Avenging Force. But this, it, we became the fringe, the side of the company, not really paying attention to us. So I could do, I did whatever I wanted at that time, uh, because they were busy now with big budget, with Toby Hooper, inv- uh, Invaders from Mars. Uh, uh, invasion USA with the Chuck Norris. Oh, yeah. So those were suddenly became big budget movies and our movies, they didn't bother us at all. I, I could, I did whatever I wanted. That's good. <laughs> yeah, but the company became a, a, a big company. But of course we know today, historically, retrospectively that was didn't have a base financially. The company yeah. didn't have a base and quality didn't have a base. They did not produce, this company that produced about 400 movies, I can say that they had one, one really A-list good movie, Runaway Train.
0: Yeah, Eric Roberts, yeah.
1: That's the only, in my opinion, many other people uh, think about the same thing. I mean, they did a movie with John Cassavetes, but that's not a mega movie. Yeah. Uh, But uh, they did an opera, Othello but one excellent, excellent movie, only one, Runaway Train. And you cannot sustain a company, but you know, the studios, maybe not every year they have great mega movie, but once every three years they must have, every studio must have one or two great, big box, huge box office success and critical success. And Canon didn't didn't have the financial base or the quality to sustain for a long time. And like uh, the growth was like going crazy and it was inevitable from a corporation point of view. It doesn't matter if you make movie or you or you sell a, a toothpaste that such a company will collapse because there was, it was not going, there was no, impact. there was no profit. <laughs> One
0: thing I read, and I don't know if you knew about this. Again, this is something I read online. So I don't know if it's a hundred percent true. But Canon purchased the rights to
1: Spider-Man? There was a moment that those hero comic books were not very successful and sold after. Oh, they were The big boom came after Spider-Man, the first Spider-Man.
0: Yeah, yeah. But like Captain America bombed the, the in the late 70s?
1: They were able to purchase the rights to Superman, even though Superman was big, but was not big like today, you know, like yeah. the huge event movies. So Superman was successful, but somehow they... Succeeded to purchase the right to Superman, to Spider-Man, to Captain America, but they didn't do anything with it. They didn't have either or enough money or enough knowledge or whatever. Yeah. And only later they became what they are today, you know, the super movies, the, the super mega movies of the comic, comic books.
0: Yeah, we discussed the second Captain America like TV movie because they were trying to do it to get a series. And it's mm-hmm. just like, it's so bad when you try to do those effects back then that they could do now it just doesn't look good
1: no no of course not and and uh, canon the company did not have this vision of the studios the understanding the vision of the studio that you understand that you make one movie and it's successful then you make a bigger movie the sequel is bigger because there is merchandise there is yeah. theme park for canon it was one movie after the other so they make american ninja which is successful They'll make American Ninja number two, kind of the same budget, a little bit less. Then they make American Ninja number three with 10% of the budget of, uh. number, of number two. So for, they didn't have this thinking, this vision of we can take something and make it huge because there are theme park, merchandise, there are money beyond, not only movies. For them, it was only making movies. You no, know, they, they, they didn't have this... Uh, Knowledge and vision of the big studios, of the big major studios, which understand that uh, when you make one movie, the sequel gets bigger, and the third yeah. sequel is even bigger until you kill the, uh, until you squeeze the lemon on the way. <laughs> <laughs>
0: like I like American Ninja too. I really like just Steve. D- you could tell obviously from the first one, but I'm sure just being around each other, like Steve James and Michael's, uh, just chemistry on camera in the second movie. Steve James has so many funny lines, like when he's picking up the girl at the party that they go to and just him, the way he's fighting people, like he's almost incredible Hulk. All those guys are piled on him. He throws them all off at the bar. That bar scene's amazing.
1: We decided it was uh, intentional. You know, we made American Ninja, the original one. Was not heavy on humor. It, we kind there was a vision. This is going to be kind of a James Dean movie, you know, action, yeah. rebel without a cause. I don't know, something like this. And uh, and uh, you know, there is dark, uh, dark uh, themes in American Ninja. Uh, the military is not really they they are not loyal. It's dark yeah. themes. When we came to 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 do the second movie. Ninja three, the American Ninja number two, we went to South Africa. And we were suddenly in this kind of tropical atmosphere and, and, and we adapted the script to be in this kind of tropical atmosphere. And it called itself, uh, we shed ourselves from this serious, dark part of the... And suddenly now we are dealing with science fiction, with fictional ninjas, with uh, some scientists. So we are entering some fantasy land and comedy. <laughs> so that's why we let ourselves go live. I really I always all my life I wanted to do a, a, a brawl in a saloon brawl so I got my chance here I, I squeezed it in the, what you're mentioning Steve James. so I, finally I squeezed in a saloon bar, a saloon brawl from a western into a an ninja into movie and uh, other stuff that leaned itself into life. The only only major difference that maybe hurt a little bit American Ninja number two, that in American Ninja, the original, the duo, Michael Dudikoff, Steve James, they don't have a mission. The troubles are coming upon them and they have to solve it and they get involved because of their characters. And uh, in American Ninja two, they had a mission right away from the, let's go. From the beginning, they came for a mission. And... So this is diverted from our principal vision of American ninja that the heroes don't have a mission they they get involved in the trouble the trouble are following them It happens that the trouble do follow them, but, yeah. but they have a they, have, they come with a mission which is a little bit different but they, but they, but they, that allowed us to to introduce the light tone, the comical tone.
0: No, definitely, and it's cool to see them again. Like I never saw until I watched it last week. Avenging Force. It's cool to see them in another movie, and I don't. I like that movie a lot. That movie's so good. John P. Ryan, who's the bad guy in Death
1: Wish Four, he's great in this movie. Yeah, he was in Runaway Train. He was the warden. Yeah, yeah. He's a, he's the warden in Runaway Train. That's how I knew. That's how I met him. That's how I oh, okay. chose him because I saw uh, Runaway Train. Uh, uh, correct, and uh, uh, Avenging Force is completely different ball of game, you know, <laughs> it's a different thing. It's a, It was written by James Booth, the script was ready. I was not involved in writing the script in any shape or form, nothing. Uh, I was involved in shaping the movie, but the script yeah. was there. We didn't change the script. James Booth wrote the script, he's in the movie. and uh, But by then, you know, it was after American Ninja before we did American Indian Turtle, But coming back from the Philippines, Steve and Michael were already friends on a, on a personal level. Yeah, uh, They were obviously on the screen, we know today, they had this, whatever it takes, the chemistry that it takes to be in the screen, even if you hate each other, but still on personal level. Because in the beginning, they had a rough beginning. They didn't become a friend right away. But on the screen, there was this chemistry, you know, those two guys, buddy buddy. That in some movies it works, some movies, you know, it doesn't doesn't work. But but Butch Cassidy, you know, yeah, wow, those two guys are really really good together. You believe that they will sacrifice each other's life for the other, and and uh, so by then when we went to do Avenging Force, this, this chemistry was already there, and the friendship was there, and and it's obvious uh, though in. In *Avenging Force*, Steve does not finish the movie. He doesn't last. His character doesn't last all the way to the end. But then we got back to. Then we flew to South Africa, to Cape Town to do. And you know, by then the chemistry between the two of them was already working, and then they knew each other a little nuances and and how to interact with each other. So it works pretty well. So it was a good duo. It was a, it was a good pair. For, and then, then they did the steve and michael continue american ninja number five i think number number four again they were together and so on yeah so it was it was successful uh, listen every movie we know today american ninja is quite a success in 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 terms of uh, low budget independent action movie huge success uh, we believe uh, it's you know it's 35 years and it's still playing in all the channels yeah. and late night and It's reissued on DVDs, uh, Blu-rays. We estimate that the movie will have been seen by more than 100 million people worldwide in the in in this span of 35 years. And every young kid, most of young kids in the world, they know American Ninja. So it so there is a secret to it. You're thinking why why this movie success? Because there are many many movies in the world. Every year there are hundreds and thousands of movies. So yeah, part of it is the key. Chem- of course, most of all is the uh, character and the charisma of Michael Dudikoff. No question about it, you know. Yeah. He's the lead, he's the star, he, he he leads the movie. Then the chemistry between him and Steve James, the body body, the two of them, and the love story with Judy Ernst. So those three elements, of course, you know of course there are ninjas there is a story there is betrayal there is drama there is everything but those elements dudikov dudikov Steve James Michael dudikov Judy Aronson and and the and the very elaborate fight sequences and action sequences and that's what what's made the movie so no big secret here
0: <laughs> yeah you know it's funny like when you say and I, and i believe you like the movies that you did were low budget it's funny the way a low budget looked in the 80s or maybe even the 90s. But if you watch a low budget movie today, there's like a huge difference between that and the movie in the movie theater. It's insane.
1: Doug, we didn't know then. We called ourselves low budget. Today, yeah. when we look at Beck, we, this is, now it's classified medium budget. It's not low budget. You know, we went to the Philippines. We had a huge crew. Three camera units, nine weeks of shooting, six days a week. This wow. is not a low budget. Low budget yeah, yeah. is uh, five weeks shooting in uh, one unit, um, uh, horror picture, today. So we had more budget then. Our budget then was bigger than low budget of today. Yeah, yeah. So it was not a tiny movie. The The crew in the Philippines was more than 200 people, the crew. and And... We were shooting nine weeks, six, six days a week. This is a luxurious and and I was I was not denied of anything as a director. I want a motorcycle, and mot- a motorcycle was not in the script. We wanted a motorcycle that we couldn't find in the Philippines. We flew one from Hong Kong. We wanted this specific ninja motorcycle. A motorcycle yeah. came from whatever I asked for was there we need we need the 300 martial artists to do this big scene with so called so we so we uh, we we titled the, the ninja school we got 300 martial artists <laughs> so it was not jeeps uh, explosions stunt people whatever we wanted we we got whatever we requested whatever i requested as a director or my crew or my stunt crew or my action people we got So it was not a tiny budget. Today, we know. at the time, we called ourselves low budget because compared to a James Bond movie, we were low budget. Uh, Compared to any action movie uh, uh, that the studios made, we were low budget. But today we know. Today it's classified uh, medium budget, they call it. And that's why the look is big because we got everything we wanted, uh, really. And and those movies were much longer than our scenes that were taken out. Menachem Golan did not like movies that, which are longer than uh, uh, 90 minutes. 95 was the top of the top that he allowed. And the only exception was uh, Avenging Force that he he let me go a little bit over 95. Little. So we still have scenes. So yes, you, you got the best scenes, the scenes which didn't work out, the scenes which were, the quality was not great. Boom, they're out of the movie. So that, that that's that's why today when you look at them, and, and you cannot compare them to the day movies with the, all the special effects, the optical effects, yeah. the, the, the screens. The, the, if you look at uh, Fast and Furious or you look at yeah. any of the superhero movies, no comparison whatsoever. But for the time, yeah, True Lies was bigger than American Ninja, but not much bigger, you know. Yeah, that's what I mean. There yeah. were no much bigger action in True Lies or Predator than in American Ninja. But those were big budget movies. True yeah. Lies, Predators were big budget movies, but the same, the same kind, the same genre. So Canon was able to compete. We could compete with them more or less, especially in the home video market. When, when the kids went to the, to the rental shop to rent a cassette, VHS, they didn't see a difference between Predator and American Ninja. For them, it was the same quality
0: this was perfect i honestly like it like all the interviews i did even when i talked like eric roberts or or lisa or william sadler anyone i like finding out how they started that's the most important thing for me so i loved hearing how you got started in it and then touching a little bit of your history and then uh, of course with canon so sam thank you so much
1: thank you very much it was a terrific interview interesting Uh, you have an interesting uh field that you're interested in and you explore it. And thank you for uh, having me. And I hope uh, your viewers and listeners will enjoy it.
0: Man, Sam, king of the sequels, right? And king of the storytelling. His stories are so cool. I love that when I asked him if he went to the movies to check it out. And then he talked about, you know, the studio with, you know, the producers and everyone and the test audiences. But when he went to like a real actual audience, he was able to see the kids come out and start doing the kicks. You can like hear that excitement in his voice all these years later. And the fact that he thought that that movie would only have like a six month life cycle, man, he was so wrong. People are going to love this movie forever. It's going to stand the test of time. All of his movies. will, you know, and, uh, breaking two electric boogaloo, you know, that anytime you say anything with two throw electric boogaloo, Right in the back. And don't forget stories from the trenches, adventures in making high octane Hollywood movies with Canon veteran Sam Furstenberg. I'll put the link in the notes. Now your homework, American Ninja 2, the confrontation. It's on Tubi and Pluto. It bounces back and forth. So make sure you check it out. I think it's gonna be on Pluto. So I'll put the link in there so you can watch it. And don't forget to review, rate, share our podcast, follow us on all social media at sequels only. And don't forget to check out our website, sequelsonly.com. Good night.